You can take your Bibles and turn with me to Lamentations chapter 3. We're back in this landmark chapter, and specifically, we're back in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 28 through 39. We're picking back up in our study of this passage and continuing to think through what faithfulness in the midst of suffering looks like. And just to set the expectations, as we've already done in this study, uh, the, the Scriptures aren't going to give you some kind of magic pill or mystical lever that you can pull to get you out of suffering. Instead, the Scriptures, specifically this passage, is guiding us and shepherding us towards faithfulness in the midst of suffering. That's what our Lord calls us to. So this passage of Scripture, this entire chapter that we've been working through uh, at a snail's pace, it shows us how God's people should personally handle suffering in their lives. And by the way, we're going through this passage at a snail's pace for a reason. Part of it is that's just kind of what we do around here, isn't it? And when we study God's Word, we want to give an account for every clause, every word that's in this text. We want to make an, give an account for that so we understand the logic of the Lord. Additionally, we want to take time to understand this passage. This is a passage where we, we often in the past have just kind of, we fly in, we look at verses 22 and 23, great is the faithfulness of the Lord, and then we fly out of it. So, so it's a passage we're not as familiar with, so we need to take a little extra time with it. But also, it is a subject that is of profound importance and interest to us, isn't it? That is, how do we handle it when life does not go the way we want it to go? How do, how do we handle this kind of suffering? How do we handle disappointment? How do we handle trials? How do we walk through these things that characterize this age in a fallen world? That's what this passage is guiding us through. And so it's worth our time to, to move slowly through it. And particularly, these, pass, these verses that we're looking at, verses 28 through 39, these particular verses focus on the indispensable role of divine truth in the midst of personal suffering. They remind us that if we are going to walk through the perils of this life, we are going to have to do so armed with the truth of God. That's all there is to it. As we have seen over the last several weeks, truth plays a vital role in shepherding our hearts through suffering. Think of it this way. Truth provides us with content from God for our faith. We're supposed to walk by faith, right? How do you know what you're supposed to believe in? It's not a blind faith. We just talked about that a minute ago. It's not blind faith. It's not just, well, I, I, I feel something. It must be faith. And if I've got faith, that's good. No, no, no. It's faith with a specific content. It's faith with God's truth as its content. And so as we're immersed in the truth, the truth shepherds our hearts towards the faith that we need. So too, God's truth provides us with divine clarity for our situation. I mean, so often I find myself thinking, I just don't have clarity on what's going on in my life right now. I don't have clarity in my heart. I don't have clarity on my circumstances. I need clarity. And the only way that we can find clarity of what is going on is if we come back to the truth and compare our hearts, our lives, our circumstances to God's truth. God's truth provides us with much needed clarity. It shepherds us in that direction. And by the way, because it provides clarity, it shepherds us towards discernment. 
God's truth gives us discernment in the midst of our suffering. At the same time, often we get in the midst of suffering and we say what? What do I do? What do I do? Well, God's truth might not provide a, a specific detailed answer for you in your situation. However, it does provide you with principles and directions for how you should respond and how you should act, doesn't it? And in this way, the truth shepherds your hearts towards obedience. Often when we say, what do we do? What am I going to do? What am I do now? What am I going to do? Really what we mean is, what action can I take to end the pain as soon as possible? That's, that's what I mean. That's why so many times we'll be talking with, with, with grieving brothers and sisters and they'll just say, I don't know what to do. And, and I know what they mean. And I say, I don't know what to do either. Because, because there is no answer for that. How do I end the pain as soon as possible? You don't. That's not in your control. However, if you're saying, how do I stay obedient in the midst of this suffering? Oh, well now, now I know where to go. Let's open up God's word and let's talk about what obedience in the midst of suffering looks like. God's truth shepherds us in that direction. And in doing all this, in driving us towards faith, and, and, and in helping us to discern truth from error, and, and in, in helping us to stay obedient to Christ. In all of this, here's what the truth does. The truth protects our souls in the midst of suffering. And that's the biggest thing. You, you need not worry about your life on this earth. It, it is nowhere near as important as your soul and its eternal fate. So how can I, how can I protect myself? From this pain. I don't know. I don't think you can. How can I protect my soul? You run back to the truth. You believe the truth. You, you, you discern your situation based on the truth. And you obey the truth. That is protection for your soul. And so in this way. God is using his truth as a means of grace. To shepherd us towards perseverance and endurance. He's using his truth essentially to protect us from apostasy. From walking away. God's truth is, is hemming us in to protect us from ourselves and our own sin. And so in all this, the truth plays a vital role for the believer in the midst of suffering. But I think also as we think through this issue, we need to recognize that, that not only do we need truth for faithfulness in our suffering... But understand also, by God's design, there are many instances when we need suffering to fully understand the truth, don't we? You see, the Lord graciously uses every trial that we faithfully endure to deepen our understanding and commitment to His Word. It's one thing to learn these truths in a classroom, but it's another thing to walk through them and see God's faithfulness in our life and say, you know what? I know what's going on. It's exactly what I read about in Lamentations chapter 3. And now, Lamentations chapter 3, the meaning doesn't change. I don't, I don't have a new revelation, but instead, Lamentations chapter 3 becomes much deeper and more real to me, doesn't it? It's a lot easier for me to believe Lamentations chapter 3 when I'm able to look back at my life and say, wait a minute, I lived through something of that, didn't I? To see, wow, God was faithful to me in the midst of this trial despite my sinfulness. 
And when, when you see that, it's not a new understanding. It's not a new revelation. But what it is, it's a deeper understanding of these truths. And, and it's a deeper faith commitment to the truths. Each trial is an opportunity for us to see God's promises leap off the pages of Scripture and materialize in my life. Now that's not just a promise that the prophet made through God, uh, God made through the prophet. Instead, it's a promise that I have realized in my own life. Martin Luther put it this way, Were it not for tribulation, I should not understand the Scriptures. <laughs> Luther always had a way of putting things in the extreme, didn't he? Jerry Bridges, author of the phenomenal book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts, he described it this way. And listen to this somewhat extended quote from him. He said, It is not that we learn from adversity something different from what we can learn from the Scriptures. Rather, adversity enhances the teaching of God's Word and makes it more profitable to us. In some instances, it clarifies our understanding or causes us to see truths we had passed over before. At other times, it will transform head knowledge into heart knowledge as theological theory becomes a reality to us. See, in all of this, here's what we see. There's a vital connection between suffering and truth and truth and suffering, isn't there? The, the two, by God's design, go hand in hand. And we see that connection clearly in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 28 through 39. This passage is feeding us with the kind of truth that we will need to be faithful in the midst of our suffering. Specifically, and this is the way we've organized our thinking through this passage over the last, last several weeks. Specifically, this passage provides us with four sustaining truths that help us endure suffering. Four sustaining truths. Same, same outline we've been on now. This is week three of it. Four uh, sustaining truths to help you endure suffering. We saw the first one a few weeks ago, and that is the truth about God's trustworthiness. In the midst of our most profound suffering, God remains impenetrably trustworthy. You say, I don't know what God's doing. I don't know what's going on. I don't like this. Yep, all of those can be true statements, and yet that doesn't affect the trustworthiness of God one bit. God's trustworthy. We need to understand that when, when, when we're preparing to go through suffering or we're in the midst of suffering. We need to understand God is trustworthy. <coughs> Secondly, we saw last week the truth about God's discipline. If we're going to endure this discipline and allow it to have a sanctifying effect in our life, we need to understand something of what God's doing through it. And what we saw last week is that God's discipline, it's not permanent. This discipline for His people, it's temporary. It's for a time. Additionally, we saw last week that God's discipline is not unloving. And our, and our fallen mentality it's so easy for us to get in the midst of something we don't like and say, this must be a sign that God does not love me. <laughs> well, as we talked about last week, you can just lay that concern aside. If you're a believer in Christ, if you're in the Lord, God loves you. And His discipline towards you, it's not unloving, it's loving. Just as a human father would imperfectly discipline his children to, to produce discipline in them, 
so too God lovingly disciplines his children. So that, don't you doubt the love of God. His discipline for you, it's temporary. It will end eventually. Either in this life or when Christ comes back or you go to Christ. And additionally, his discipline for you, it's, it's loving. And we, and we also saw by, the, uh, saw, by the way, that God's discipline, it's not malicious. In other words, he's not making you suffer because he likes to watch you suffer. He's not afflicting you for affliction's sake. He is sovereign over these things, as we'll see later on this morning. But he's not doing it because he, he gets some inappropriate sense of joy from watching you suffer. No, no. It's not malicious affliction. It's purposeful. There's a purpose behind the discipline. And the purpose behind that discipline is to produce righteousness in you. To conform you to the image of Christ. To make you holy. That's the purpose behind it. That's what God's doing when he disciplines you. Does that make it easier? No. But at least you can orient your thinking when you're in the midst of suffering to say, wait a minute. I may not know exactly what God's doing right now, but I know that this is not permanent. I know that he loves me, and I know that through this, he's working to make me holy. Now, that's the kind of truth that's going to help you in the midst of your suffering, isn't it? So we need to understand the truth about God's discipline. And that brings us this morning to new territory. Brings us to verses 34 through 36, where we find a third sustaining truth. Here we see what we might call the truth about God's justice. We need to understand the truth about God's justice in the midst of our suffering. Look at these verses, verses 34 through 36. Here the word says, to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Now, as creatures created in the image of God, we have an innate desire for justice and fairness, or at least when it affects us, right? And in the midst of our trials and temptations, it's easy for us to respond with questions like, why me? Or this isn't fair. Or I've done all the right things. Why should I have to endure this? Well, these verses were written to Judah in a time when they might have been tempted to ask those very questions. These verses were written to remind Judah of the unassailable justice of God, even in the midst of their unimaginable suffering. In other words, even when we are treated unfairly by sinful people, God remains just. God remains just. And look how this plays out in these verses. Each of these verses describes an injustice that Judah would have experienced at the hands of the Babylonians who, who had invaded, who, who had sieged the city, and then had overrun it and destroyed it. It was an invading army. And, and one of the things that Judah would have endured at the hands of the Babylonians is, verse 34, it says, to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, or literally all the prisoners of the land. And this is speaking of the mistreatment of the Judean prisoners by the Babylonians. Do you think this ancient conquering army uh, uh, subscribed to the Geneva Convention? 
I mean, we could spend a lot of time going over historical sources to look at the mistreatment and brutality of the Babylonian army, but, but we need only remind ourselves of Jeremiah 39 when, when Zechariah the king, he should have just submitted like God said and, and it would have been easy on them. But instead, he rebelled against the Lord, he rebelled against the, the, the Babylonians and then when it, when it was all about to fall apart on them, you know, the captain of the ship goes down with the ship, right? Well, not Zechariah as the king. You know what he did? He left his people and took off running. Tried to outrun the Babylonians to get to Egypt so he could hide there. That wasn't going to work, by the way. But he was going to try. Well, the Babylonians overran him, captured him. Nebuchadnezzar was brought to him. And you know what happened to him? Last thing he saw before his eyes were plucked out was his young sons were killed before his eyes. Is that a just response? No, that was sinful. And imagine with the Babylonian army coming in and overrunning the city after an 18-month siege, do you think that they were treating the people with fairness and dignity as they conquered them? I doubt it. In fact, the next verse picks up even more of this injustice and it says, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High. Uh, this is talking uh, about a perversion of justice according to God's standards. To be treated unfairly. Not given due process as we might say in our own nation. Now what you have to understand is that after the 18 month siege of the city, the Babylonians finally overran the city and they leveled it. And then everybody kind of in the upper class, the rulers, the rich, the landowners, anybody who could contribute positively to the Babylonian society, they were carried back to Babylon. In fact, the king of Babylon, uh, historical records say that he understood that there were holes in their culture. And so he wanted to cherry pick the, the elites of the Jewish culture, bring them into Babylon and put them to work and all the things that they were good at and the Babylonians weren't good at. So they were just uprooted and taken to Babylon. But many, many of the poor and also those who had taken off and run to hide well, once the city was leveled and uh, another ruler, Gedaliah, was put in place, well, all, all of a sudden all the poor and all those who ran away kind of start coming out of the woodworks. And, and now the, the Babylonians have this task of allotting the land to all the people because they wanted the land to be put to use. They wanted to make money off the whole thing. So they started allotting land to different peoples and families that had previously belonged to somebody else. Now let me ask you, do you think that was done with, with carefulness and fairness and do you think that was done with, with an awareness of all the tribal allotments that God ha had set forth when the people first entered the land? I doubt it. I mean, you can imagine the great injustice that was done during this period of upheaval. In fact, that's why it goes on to say in verse 36, to subvert a man in his lawsuit. Uh, the word subvert here means to, to make crooked, to defraud, to, to, to oppress through injustice. I mean, think about it this way. If you were one of the Judeans who, who took off and ran, and now you're coming back and you're saying, boy, I'd, I'd like to get some of that really good land over there. It'd be easier for me to make my tax quota then. And all of a sudden, because you ran, you got a little extra money or some goods stored up. 
that, that you didn't lose during the siege, what do you do? You go to the guy who's giving out the land and you, you say, well, here, here's, here's this. How about you give me that land? And you think that might be how things worked? I don't know if it's how it worked back then, but I know there's a lot of that going on now. Needless to say, in the fall of Jerusalem and in the transfer of power, there were massive injustices going on. And what made these injustices theologically and personally more difficult to process was the reality that God had ordained all of this. I mean, there's been no secret. Going through the book of Lamentation, there's been no secret. Who is in control of all these things? Who sent the Babylonians as his instrument of discipline? God did. God was sovereign over all of it. In fact, notice it says that all of this happened, verse 35, in the presence of the Most High. Most High is kind of a Hebrew way of saying the God who's in control of everything. All of this happened while the God who is sovereign over every detail of this universe was watching. And this would have elicited the question, Wait a minute, does the sinful injustice of the Babylonians reflect the injustice of God towards the Judeans? Well, the answer to this, of course, is no. Everything happened under the sovereign purview of God, but God was not culpable or guilty of the sins of man. In fact, James chapter 1 makes that point. God doesn't cause you to sin. God's not guilty of sin. God's not responsible for sin. In fact, we know that God did not approve of these actions because in places like Exodus 23, He made laws against subverting justice to a man in His lawsuit. So what does this mean? If God was in control of all this injustice, but He wasn't guilty of it, what, what, what does that mean for us? Well, means this, as we see consistently through the Scriptures, God often allows men to commit sins that they are determined to do for His own glory and purposes. He will allow someone to commit sins that they are determined to do for His own glory and for His divine purposes. He said, give me an example. Judas. Jesus told the Father, look, I've kept all you've given to me except for the son of perdition who was set apart long ago. God was sovereign over all that. God didn't lose control. Judas didn't all of a sudden become sovereign over the whole universe. But God was not guilty of Judas's sin. Judas was guilty of that. God simply for His sovereign glory and sovereign purposes, allowed it to happen so that Christ would die on the cross and so that we could be forgiven of our sins. God's not guilty of Judas's sin. Judas is. But God was sovereign over it. In fact, notice at the end of verse 36 what your English translation say, says. It says, the Lord does not approve. That's what most translations say. That's a pretty loose translation, I have to say. That's a pretty, here's what I mean by that. It's a pretty interpretive translation. The translators are trying to get at what they think the meaning of it is. If, if 
we were to translate it just literally, take the words as they come, it would say something to the effect of, does not he see, does not the Lord see? That word approved there, it's see. And really the question is, doesn't he see what's going on? And of course, the, the, the inference here is that he sees what's happening and of course he does not approve of it. But really the point the prophet's making is, oh, he sees it. He sees it and he's going to deal with it in his timing. He's not guilty of this injustice by any means. In fact, he's going, he sees it and he's going to punish it. That's the point. In fact, this is exactly the promise that God makes in Jeremiah, same prophet, Jeremiah 51.24. Listen, just listen to what it says in this verse in Jeremiah 51.24. It says, this is God speaking, I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea before your very eyes for all the evil that they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. So what did God think of what Babylon did? He thought it was evil. And he promised to bring justice, righteous justice to bear upon them through punishment. God saw the Babylonians. He sent the Babylonians. But he did not approve of what they did. And he was going to deal with it in his timing. So what's the point of all this? Well, Here's what we can continue to affirm as God's people. God may use the sin and injustice that other people bring into our life to discipline us. He may use that. He may. People might sin against you and God sovereignly allows that, sovereignly ordains that. He's not responsible for it, but he's in control of all things. He might do that. But he never approves of sin. And listen to this. He always deals with it. You see, by implication, we are reminded from these verses of God's perfect justice in our life. You might say, that's unfair, that's unjust. Well, it might be. You might say, well, where's God and when's He going to deal with it? Well, God is watching. And I'll tell you when God's going to deal with it. God's going to deal with it in His timing. What you need to know for now is He's not unjust. He's not unfair in this. He's not sinful in this. Instead, He's allowing this injustice in your life for your good. God may allow us to suffer because of others' sins, but He never sins against us and only allows that injustice for our good. With all the talk about justice nowadays, these are truths that we have to have before us. We don't approve of justice, but we recognize that God is doing a good work even through injustice. You can never, you, you never have to doubt the justice of God. In fact, you want to know the extreme, extreme measures that, that God will take to preserve His justice, His righteousness. You know how far God will go to remain just? He will go so far that he would allow his son to die on the cross so that he could remain just and yet the justifier of sinners like you and I. I mean, think about it. 
you're a sinner just like I'm a sinner. And, and for the perfect and holy and just and righteous God of the universe to just say, yeah, you know what? That sin's no big deal. We're just gonna pretend like it never happened. You know what that is? That's injustice. God can't just let that sin go based on nothing. If we had judges that did that in our nation, we, we, we'd, we'd run them out of town. Rightfully so. So why would we expect anything less out of the justice of God? It's perfect. It's impenetrable. That's why he had to send Christ to die for us, you understand, right? He couldn't just declare us righteous based on nothing. He had to declare us righteous based on something, and that something is the righteousness of Christ. And he couldn't just let go of our sins and pretend like they never happened. It had to be dealt with. It had to be punished. His justice had to be satisfied. And that took place through the death of Christ. Look, in our day-to-day circumstances, we can be confident in the righteousness and justice of God. And by the way, from this passage, we, so, we also can be confident that God sees everything that's happening to us. Do you know Jesus said that every careless word we speak will one day be accounted for? That is sobering for us, isn't it? But in the midst of our suffering, when somebody else is sinning against us, when somebody else is gossiping about us, when somebody else is mistreating us, when we got a, a lousy boss who's not treating us justly or rightly or fairly, when, when all of these everyday common, uh, common everyday situations just assail us and flood us, we can remember God's going to deal with all of this. And that motivates me not only to endure my suffering, but it also motivates me to pursue righteousness in my suffering. Look, I don't want to stand before the holy judge who sees all that's happening and have to give an account for my unrighteousness in this situation. Let them give account for their unrighteousness. Me, I'm going to pursue righteousness. Jerry Bridges, again, in his phenomenal book and actually it was revised there's a new version of it titled is god really in control same material as trusting god he writes this one part of humbling myself under the mighty hand under his mighty hand is to resist any tendency of bitterness or resentment in my heart towards the other person Though his actions may be sinful in themselves, God is using those actions in my life for good. Is that not what Joseph confessed? Did his brothers treat him unjustly? Yes, they did. Did he take it into his own hands to deal with their sin? Nope. He trusted God to do that. And at the end of the day, when his brothers said, you know, now that dad's dead, are you going to kill us? No, no, no. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. You see, when we allow the truth of God's righteousness, His justice to shepherd our hearts in the midst of suffering, it helps us to see that God is acting in our lives not only with perfect justice, but He's acting for our good. And that ultimately, every sin, every injustice, it will be dealt with. We can trust God with that. Now, that's an important point, and it leads us into another important truth that we need to be armed with in the midst of our suffering. 
You know, we've seen God's trustworthiness. We've seen God's discipline. We've seen now God's justice. But as we turn our attention to verses 37 through 39, we see what we might call the truth about God's sovereignty. Look at these verses, beginning in verse 37. Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Here we learn something of the sovereignty of God. And this is important for us because when we are caught in the midst of life's storms, one of the truths that we need as much as any other truth to anchor our souls is the truth of God's sovereignty. We need to recognize that the trustworthy, loving, and just God that we've been learning about in this passage is also the God who's in control of all things. In fact, without the reality of God's sovereignty, everything else that we've learned about in this passage basically means nothing. If God is is trustworthy in His character, but impotent in His ability to work in my life and situation, then what's the big deal? Yeah, He's trustworthy, but He can't do anything. If God intends to discipline me for good, but He's not sovereign over that, I... I have no assurance that that discipline won't fly out of control on them. If God is a just God, but He can't control all things and work them all out to a just end and final conclusion, then what hope is that? Yeah, I want justice to happen, but I can't make it happen either. Now you see, without the reality of God's sovereignty, none of these truths that we have seen would really matter all that much at all. That's why the prophet is reminding Judah, God is in control. And by the way, he does it at the perfect time, doesn't he? I mean, we just learned that, that God is not responsible for the sins of the Babylonians. And so in our human mind, we try, to, we try to logically put that together and we just say, oh, I think I've got it. The Babylonians did this. God's not responsible for it. So God must not have been sovereign over that part. He wasn't in control of it. That's why he's not guilty of it. Oh, to my human mind, that now makes sense. And so what do we do? We, we think we have to give away something of God's sovereignty to defend his righteousness. Notice the prophet doesn't do that, does he? He immediately comes back after saying, God is not liable for what the Babylonians did. He comes back to say, but who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord commanded it? The Babylonians did not take one course of action. They did not utter one word. They did not do one thing in battle. They didn't do one thing to the prisoners. They didn't subvert justice one time outside of the sovereign will of God. That's the point here. In fact, notice how the prophet is reminding us that God is the sovereign creator of the whole world. That's what he's alluding to when he says, who has spoken and it came to pass. There is only one being in the history of all things who is able to speak things into existence that did not previously exist. And that's God. How did God create the world? He spoke and it came to be. Through the power of His Word, by His sovereign 
will. What was not previously, previously there now exists. Think about how mind-boggling that is. And he's the only one to do that. He created the whole world by the sovereign power of his word. And by the way, because he created the world by the sovereign power of his word, he has the right to rule over the world by the sovereign power of his word. In fact, it's interesting. The prophet here, in all likelihood, is alluding to, maybe even quoting from Psalm chapter 33. In Psalm chapter 33, verse 9, it says, For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stirred firm. Now listen to the ongoing implications of this. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Do you see what the the, the psalmist is doing here? He spoke and it came to be. He's still in control of all the nations. And that's always the way it's going to be. Huh, I wonder why the prophet quoted from this passage when he was ministering to these Judeans. He's saying, look, God is in control. And the absolute sovereignty of God that it was demonstrated in creation is unrivaled even by the mighty Babylonians. This is the world's superpower. This is the big dog. This is, this is the army that up to this point no one has defeated. Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man on earth in a way that we can hardly imagine in this day and age. He was viewed as a god. In fact, the Lord disciplined him for that, didn't he? And yet the prophet is saying, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't utter one syllable apart from the sovereign will of God. And so even as the previous verses showed us that God wasn't responsible for the Babylonian sin, we now see, however, He was sovereign over it. And by the way, if we can't figure out how that works, it doesn't make it any less true. God's sovereignty is not bound by your intellect. I can't put those truths together. Well, it's a good thing we're not here to study what you've written then. Because in God's mind, there is no reconciling to be done. Both are true. As Spurgeon once said, when asked, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? Spurgeon smiled and said, I never try to reconcile friends who get along perfectly already. They're both true. And even if we can't make total sense of this, there is deep and abiding comfort in this, isn't there? Behind all the injustices and sin we might endure as God's people, we know He's sovereign and He's working towards a good and final end. So again, Joseph, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He can't say that unless he believes that God was sovereign over all that, even the sin of his brothers. That's why the prophet is pointing us back to the sovereign creator. And, and, and by the way, again, it's not just that he was sovereign in creation, but verse 38, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad comes? See, God's sovereignty did not come to an end at creation. It continues to this day. And notice the extents 
of His rule. Good and bad. Now think about it. From a, from a moral perspective, something is either good or bad, right? It's kind of like dead or alive. You're either dead or alive. The living dead is an imaginary category, right? Not true. It's either good or bad. Everything falls into one of those two buckets right there. And what's the prophet saying? God is sovereign over everything. The good, the bad, it is all a part of God's sovereign will in our lives. God ordains the events that cause suffering in our lives and He ordains the events that allow us to enjoy blessing from Him. And by the way, don't, don't you try to steal God's sovereignty from Him. He takes credit for it. You let Him take credit for it. I get so tired when the natural disaster comes on TV. They find these doodah preachers to come on CNN and say, well, that must have been Satan. God would never do such a thing. As if Satan can do anything without God's permis- permission. Don't you try and give away his sovereignty because it makes you uncomfortable. You let the Lord speak for himself. And what the Lord says is that both good and bad come from him. Now in his righteousness, he's able to hold it all together and work it towards a holy and perfect end. But you understand he is sovereign. You, you need to confess like Job. Remember Job, he's, he's talking to his poor wife. Poor woman just needed some shepherding. <laughs> Curse God and die. Thankfully, my marriage has never gotten to that point, but I can imagine it was a pretty serious situation. And, and he says, woman, what am I going to accept the good from God and not also accept the bad from God? Who's in control of all of it? God is. Now, we've got to be responsible for our sins and the consequences of our sins. We'll see that in just a minute. But we understand behind everything, our good God is in control. And if you don't affirm that, then Romans 8, 28 makes no sense. God works together all things for good for those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. If you say God is sovereign over the good things, but not over the bad things, then guess what? The bad things are not working for your good. For Romans 8, 28 to be true about your entire life as a believer, then God must be sovereign over the entirety of everything in this world. And again, you're seeing how important it is to be armed with these truths to go into suffering. God's a sovereign creator. He's a sovereign ruler over good and bad. And understand this as well. As you try to process suffering, you need to also have a firm grasp in your mind that God is the sovereign judge of the world. Notice what verse 39 concludes with. Why should a living man complain? Now you just think about that for a second. Where does life and breath and all things that we need for survival come from? It comes from God. When, when your very life is dependent upon the moment-by-moment moment kindness of the Lord to keep you alive, what complaint do you have? What complaint do you have? You're not quite comfortable enough? 
Lord, I know you created all things and I know that you've created life and I know you've given me life. And if you're a believer, I know you've given me new life in Christ, but I can't believe how small the TV is that you've provided for me. (laughs) (laughs) Or whatever. There are more significant things. There are more significant things. But yet, at the end of the day, we're dependent upon the Lord for what? Everything. And so when we complain about anything, we're complaining against the provision of God. That's why the New Testament tells us, do all things without complaining and grumbling, which is a life verse in our house with children and dads. But notice also where the prophet continues with this. Notice notice this line of reasoning. Not only do you have your life and everything because God is gracious to you, but, but the prophet goes even further. He penetrates farther and he says, a man about the punishments of his sin. Why would a sinner complain about the punishment of his sin? Judah, you, you committed spiritual harlots harlotry you you neglected the word of god you rejected the word of god you chased after false gods and idols you sought your own significance over the glory of the lord don't you be tempted to complain now that you're bearing the consequences of your sin and by the way do you see the perfect balance that 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 scripture brings to these issues for us is god responsible for sin no is he sovereign over it yes so don't fall into that trap Well, then I guess that means I'm not responsible for what I do. The devil didn't make me do it. I just found out God made me do it. No, no, no. The prophet says, don't you fall off on that side either. You're a sinner. How could you complain about the punishment that you receive? Look, as someone who derives life completely from God, we have no reason to complain. As the Apostle Paul said, with the clay, say uh, the, the pot, the clay pot say to the potter, the one who made it, why have you made me such? No. God's sovereign over that. We have no grounds on which to complain before Him, especially considering we are guilty sinners. Now, if you're here today and you've never believed in Christ Jesus, you forever in hell are going to suffer the punishments of your sin and you will have no grounds on which to complain about it because it's exactly what you've deserved. And friend, if that describes you, I would implore you today to bend your knee and submit to Christ that you might be delivered from that fate. Be saved by the God who gives life, not just physical life, but the God who freely, by His grace, through Christ Jesus, gives spiritual life and eternal life. And and if you're here today and you say, I have received that life, I have received that Well, then as a sinner who's received the greatest possible grace from God, even in the midst of the most profound suffering, what do we have to complain about? See, when we are tempted to doubt God because of our suffering, we need to remember what we actually deserve. We need to remember that He is the sovereign judge. So important for us to be armed with these truths about God's sovereignty. You see, when we shepherd our hearts with these truths, especially about God's sovereignty, we may not understand our circumstances. We may not understand what's going on. We may not even be able to discern exactly how our heart's responding in that moment. We can't know the who, 
or we can't know the, the why or the what, but we know the who, right? It's God. And to the unbelieving heart, these reminders of God's sovereignty would be virtually unbearable. What do you mean God's responsible for controlling all things? But to the regenerate heart that knows how good, holy, loving, and trustworthy God is, this truth is the source of immense comfort. Our lives, friends, our lives in Christ Jesus, no matter what is happening to us in the moment, our lives are in the hands of our good and trustworthy and loving, sovereign God. You need to be armed with that truth. You need to be armed with that truth. Whether you're going through suffering now or maybe preparing for suffering that you don't even know about yet, you need to be armed with these truths. And, and notice... Notice something about all four of these truths. What do they take our minds back to? Or maybe I should put it this way. Bad question. Here's a better question. Who do these truths draw us back to? It's the trustworthiness of God, right? That we can trust Him no matter what. It's the discipline of God. It's the justice or the goodness of God. It's the sovereignty of God. What is it? Our hearts, our minds need to be drawn back to deep truths about God if we are going to endure in the midst of suffering. Look, here's what you need to understand. God never changes. What was true of God when the prophet wrote these words continues to be true of God today. But there will be times, and now may even be one of those times, when it doesn't feel like these things are true. In fact, these truths will probably not feel true in the midst of your suffering. But understand this. The character of God is not determined by how you're feeling in the moment. Your feelings don't determine God's truths. So what do you do? You keep coming back to these truths. You keep trusting them. You keep praying, Lord, you conform my heart to these truths and help me to trust in these truths no matter what the suffering might be and no matter how my fallen feelings might betray me because I know you're trustworthy. I understand what you're doing in discipline. I know that you're righteous and just and I'm so thankful that you're sovereign over every second of my life. Those are the truths that are going to get you through suffering. We pray with me? Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. Now, these truths penetrate deep into our heart even as they are deep from Your mind. Lord, we pray that as we seek to understand them, that more than just understanding what has been said, that You would help us to trust it, to obey it, to put it to use in our life. And Lord, we pray for the dear saints who are suffering in our midst, some of whom we know about and we're seeking to encourage, some we may not even know about. Lord, we pray for your comfort in their life. Give them strength and faith to endure and give us the opportunity to come alongside and remind them of these truths and to help them walk through whatever your sovereign hand brings into their life. Lord, we love you. You are good to us. You're, you're more good to us than we deserve. 
And so we affirm your grace and we thank you for it. And we do this in Christ's name. Amen.